When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 5. The Great Earl's Rebellion. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. The man who would become known as the Great Earl, Hugh O'Neill, was born sometime around 1550 to Matthew O'Neill, who was himself the bastard son of Con O'Neill, the first Earl of Tyrone. Matthew had been recognised by Henry VIII as Con's heir to the earldom through surrender and regrant, the Tudor policy we discussed in episode 2, where Irish titles were surrendered to Henry, who regranted them in the English style. This was meant to bring Irish customs closer to the English, but, as we shall see, the Irish titles remained in use. Matthew had been made the Baron of Dungannon. His older half-brother, Shane, disputed this. He claimed that Matthew, who had been presented to Con at the age of 16, was instead the son of a blacksmith. This debate was settled like many such disputes in Irish politics, with Matthew's violent death in 1558. Con died a year later, and Shane was proclaimed the O'Neill, the king of the O'Neill clan. Hugh had been spirited away by Sir Henry Sidney after his father's death, either to England or to Dublin. Hugh's brother, Brian, inherited the barony of Dungannon until he too was killed in a skirmish with Shane's Tanist, his deputy and heir, Turlock Linnock O'Neill in 1562, leaving the title to Hugh. While Hugh was fostered by a new English family, the Hovendons, Shane consolidated his power. 
Despite meeting with Elizabeth in person and receiving confirmation of his title as the O'Neill, Shane never received the Earldom of Tyrone. For the rest of his life, Shane fought wars against his rivals, the Scottish MacDonalds of Antrim and the Irish O'Donnells of Tyrconnell, as well as the English. In 1567, Shane met his death at the hands of the MacDonalds, and the title of the O'Neill passed to his tannist, Turlock. Hugh, meanwhile, received the backing of Dublin, who supported his claim that Matthew was the son of Con, and after Shane's death in 1567, he returned at the head of a royal army to assert his claims. Hugh and Turlock remained rivals throughout the next two decades. Hugh proved relatively loyal to the English, fighting in the Second Desmond Rebellion and against the Ulster Scots. He visited court multiple times, in 1567, 1587 and in 1590, each time impressing the Queen and building alliances with leading officials in both London and Dublin. In 1585, he was finally made the Earl of Tyrone, which was confirmed after his visit to court in 1587. Turlock remained the O'Neill until 1593, when poor health and political outmanoeuvring by Hugh forced his hand. He made Hugh, whose brother he had killed, and the man who had been his chief enemy for two and a half decades, his tannist, his heir. Effectively, this made Hugh the de facto ruler of Ulster. Now don't mistake this for a reconciliation. Turlock would meet his end after Hugh captured his final stronghold and burnt it to the ground, driving him out. He would die in September of 1595, after having been the O'Neill for 28 years. As his tannist, Hugh O'Neill, 2nd Earl of Tyrone, became the O'Neill. From here on, when I refer to the O'Neill, Tyrone, or Hugh, I am referring to a single person. Naturally, the political ground had now shifted. The English had been steadily building their authority within Ulster for years, and had directly struck at Hugh's affinity multiple times as he became more of a liability than an asset. Having had extensive experience among the English, he was well aware of the political currents that favoured plantation, and knew that Ulster was being eyed as the next project. The establishment of the provincial presidency in Ulster, headed by an English colonist, Henry Bagenal, confirmed his fears. Even had the new position not been held by an avowed supporter and beneficiary of plantation, such a position was itself a threat to his authority. O'Neill and Bagenal did not get on on a personal level. Tyrone eloped with Bagenal's sister Mabel in 1591, after the president had denied O'Neill's proposal of marriage. Mabel died two years later, in 1593, the year when Tyrone reached the height of his power, Turlock having made him his deputy and heir. The O'Neill had been a useful asset in dividing and reducing the Ulster Gales. In the eyes of Dublin officials, including the Lord Deputy and Bagnall, he was now the single greatest threat to English rule in Ireland. Despite their suspicions, O'Neill proclaimed his loyalty to the Crown. At the outbreak of a rebellion in April 1593, 
which would later grow to become the Nine Years' War, he initially assisted the English in relieving a siege in May 1593, aiding his brother-in-law, Bagnall, who I'm sure was just thrilled, and helped rescue a besieged English force from certain death. The O'Neill then returned to Dungannon, apparently due to his dislike of the English leadership and displeased that he was not valued. Now, I should say that from here on, we're going to be dealing with a lot of names, so I've put some visual aids on the Facebook page and Twitter. Negotiations failed to return O'Neill to the fold. Hugh Rowe O'Donnell, O'Neill's son-in-law and brother-in-law, joined the rebellion in June 1594, and O'Neill's own brother, Cormac, participated in a raid on an English column of soldiers, the wonderfully named Battle of the Ford of the Biscuits, in August. O'Neill surprised English officials when he arrived in Dublin and promised to restore order in Ulster along with many other generous concessions, provided his authority in his territory was not infringed and his land was not shired along English lines. Sir William Russell, the Lord Deputy, seems to have agreed to these terms and allowed O'Neill to leave. Elizabeth later reprimanded him for his naivete. O'Neill would never follow up on these promises. O'Neill does appear to have sought reconciliation with the Crown, possibly pursuing the position of President of Ulster to add to his many titles, but when it became clear that this was not going to happen, the O'Neill joined his kinsmen and went into open rebellion in February of 1595. The English had been right to fear the power of the O'Neill. He had not been idle over the previous years. Politically, he had re-established his authority over the traditional vassals of the O'Neill, and since 1591 had been exchanging correspondence with Philippe II, King of Spain, the most powerful man in Europe, and the intractable foe of England since the outbreak of the Anglo-Spanish War in 1585. In 1595, O'Neill had offered him the Crown of Ireland in return for military support, pledging to be his vassal. The O'Neill was not reliant solely on foreign assistance, though. He had built up his military force far beyond what the English expected of an old Irish lord, both in terms of numbers and in equipment. In 1595, the O'Neill could muster between six and 8,000 men, and they were armed and trained in the modern style. Muskets replaced bows and slings, pikes instead of gallo-glass axes, and cavalry that was better horsed and better trained than their English counterparts. As the conflict raged on, deserters from the English army bolstered the rebels' ranks. The English had hardly ingratiated themselves to the Irish. The Tyrone army had benefited from the services of six English captains before the rebellion, who had drilled O'Neill's army in the newest tactics. His diplomatic overtures had borne fruit, too. Spanish officers, veterans of the Continental Wars, served the O'Neill in battle against the English. Mercenaries from Gallic Scotland had been recruited in large numbers and brought across the Irish Sea as tensions rose. Less exciting, perhaps, but no less vital, was the logistical achievements of the Irish army. The English expected that the O'Neill would not be able to feed his forces, but, while holed up in Ulster, the rebels were able to supply themselves quite happily. Clearly, Tyrone had made good use of the English goodwill of the previous years. 
His cavalry and much of his infantry had been trained and supplied by the English during the drawn-out power games with Turlock, when he was seen as an ally rather than an enemy. He had time to seek international support from Catholic Europe. His frequent contact with the government in Dublin and London had taught him that the English were both relentless in their policy of exerting control, but also liable to waver when faced with an opportunity for peace. Despite suspecting Tyrone's involvement in the violence of 1593 and 1594, the English forces were still caught flat-footed, with the Lord Deputy even allowing the O'Neill to leave Dublin Castle when he promised to make peace. In February 1595, the O'Neill's forces captured Blackwater Fort, besieged Monaghan, and retook Enniskillen. Bagnall, Tyrone's former brother-in-law, marched to relieve the siege of Monaghan with a force of 1,700 men. They succeeded in lifting the siege, but on the return journey, the English force was ambushed by the army of the O'Neill in the Battle of Clontibret. Tyrone vastly outnumbered the English, and his army was equipped to the standards of any continental army. The musketeers were even uniformed in red coats, and their disciplined volleys of caliber fire tore apart the encircled column. Bagnall managed to push his force through the ambush and reach a hill, where the fall of darkness granted a brief respite. When dawn came, the Irish were nowhere to be seen. Bagnall expected a follow-up to the previous day, and likely to be destroyed, but apparently the Irish musketeers, while well-trained and well-armed, had run out of gunpowder, which forced a withdrawal. After this battle, Tyrone was officially proclaimed a traitor, and the rebellion spread outside of Ulster, into Connacht in the south. Reinforcements from Brittany arrived, some 1,600 veterans along with Sir John Norris, a veteran commander of the Continental Wars. In October, the English administration commanded over 600 cavalry and over 4,000 infantry. But the isolated forts that were scattered throughout the country, meant to project royal power, were now becoming a liability. Resupplying them through hostile territory required a large escort, and Clontibret had shown just how vulnerable such marches were to ambush. In December 1595, the O'Neill and Elizabeth agreed to a truce, which would last until May of the following year, and a long-term peace did appear to be possible. An agreement was in the works which seemed like it could resolve the factors that had caused the war in the first place. The English offered the following. The territory controlled by the Confederated Irish would have English garrisons withdrawn, and an Irishman would be appointed as sheriff in Ulster, Tyrone would keep control over his traditional vassals, and his land would not be divided. The Confederates offered to formally submit acknowledge their crimes, pay rent and reparations to the Crown, some Irish lordships would be shied along English lines, and they would cease their calls for liberty of conscience, that is, publicly denouncing the Anglican Church. In theory, this agreement could satisfy everybody. The Confederate Irish, led by Tyrone, would keep their positions and authority, which had been threatened by piecemeal English encroachment, and the Tudors would get to confirm their sovereignty over the whole of Ireland 
and ensure the island stopped advertising itself as a beachhead for a Catholic invasion. However, this conflict is known as the Nine Years' War, and even if you backdate the outbreak to 1592, it has not yet been nine years. While this agreement was coming to fruition in May 1596, three Spanish diplomatic missions reached the O'Neill. Their official purpose was to scout the geography and assess the state of the rebellion, but one ambassador went beyond his remit and promised Tyrone that Philippe had already mustered an army to aid him and a fleet to transport it. Now, this wasn't strictly or even remotely true, not yet at least, but the O'Neill was convinced and abandoned the peace agreement, beginning a new phase of the war. The O'Neill began to publicly proclaim the religious cause of the conflict. Ireland was still largely Catholic, and the Tudor state was Protestant. This allowed Tyrone to appeal across ethnic lines. Many Old English were themselves Catholic. On a political level, Tyrone distanced himself from the English even further. His inauguration as the O'Neill on the death of Turlock in 1595 had been a strictly Irish affair. His title of Earl of Tyrone had been granted by the English, but now his right to rule was grounded in Irish custom too. During a succession dispute in 1596 involving his own son-in-law, Art Rowe, the O'Neill actually backed the rival claim. Despite being family, Art Rowe's claim was based in English custom, whereas he was opposed by the Tannist of the previous ruler. This made clear that only Irish law and custom was relevant in the kingdom of the O'Neill. Over the next year, Armagh was captured by the new Lord Deputy, Lord Burr, in July 1597. After Burr died two months later, Thomas Butler, Earl of Ormond, became Lord Lieutenant General of all forces in Ireland. This is the same Ormond who returned to Ireland with Kildare in the 1550s, and who played a central role in instigating, and then putting down, the Desmond rebellions. Negotiations led to another truce between the English and the O'Neill in December of 1597. In March 1598, a number of Irish lords gave their submission to Ormond, and in April of the same year, the O'Neill was granted a pardon under the Great Seal. Peace was on the horizon. Except, again, this is the Nine Years' War, and we are only in 1598. Sir Henry Bagnall, Tyrone's former brother-in-law, now mortal enemy, marched from the stronghold of Dundalk at the head of a force of almost four and a half thousand men. His destination was north of Armagh, Blackwater Fort, a different Blackwater fort than the one captured by the rebels in 1595. This new fort had been built in 1597 by Ormond and had swiftly been besieged by the O'Neill. Bagnall's mission was to resupply the bastion. He would never reach it. 
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The Confederate Irish had ample warning of the advance, and had prepared for an ambush much like they had done at Clontibret, although it appears that their numbers advantage was not so high this time, and by now the English were well aware of their capabilities. Still, the outcome was even more disastrous for Bagnall. The English force fought their way through the harrying attacks of the Irish, much like at Clontibret, but took large numbers of casualties. At one point, a gunpowder store exploded, and confusion reigned when half the army attempted to retreat to Armagh, while the other stayed in its position. The cavalry struck, cutting down any soldiers at the River Ford, and the retreating army was harried until the Irish fell back in the face of close-range artillery fire and a lack of ammunition. Again, the English survivors could thank the low supplies of gunpowder for their escape. Of the men Bagnall had led out of Dundalk, only about 2,000 made it back to Armagh, where they were besieged and forced to withdraw. Sir Henry Bagnall, the O'Neill's rival for almost a decade, had been killed in the battle, reportedly shot in the head. The Battle of the Yellow Ford escalated the conflict. The rebels found themselves joined by thousands of new recruits, particularly in Munster, where English colonisation had been both heavy-handed and sparsely concentrated, almost 10,000 Irish rose up against the interlopers. As I touched on in episode 2, the spread-out nature of the colonies meant that there could be little coordination for defence, and many colonists were killed and many more driven out by the sudden uprising. Likewise, the defeat forced the English to invest even more resources into the conflict, and in 1599, Robert Devereux, the second Earl of Essex, arrived to take the position of Lord Deputy, backed by almost 20,000 more soldiers. Despite Essex's arrival, the English continued to struggle against the rebels. The Earl's strategy to pacify the South before moving north was hampered by inefficient supply and a lack of transport ships. Many of his troops died from disease or raids, and Essex was perpetually distracted by factionalism at London's court. His arrival had partly been the result of his being outmanoeuvred, as service in Ireland, by necessity, required long absences from the capital. Essex did not want this job, and it showed. Another truce was signed between the O'Neill and the English in August, but it was a controversial one, and Essex, fearing that his enemies would use it against him, returned to London in September without permission from the Queen. He was later executed for treason after a failed coup. In the interim between Essex's departure and the arrival of his replacement, the O'Neill sent Elizabeth humiliating terms of peace in 1599 which allowed for English overlordship of Ireland, but with wide-ranging concessions in politics and religion. Naturally, the terms were rejected out of hand. 
Essex, now prevented from taking back his position by the lack of a head, was replaced by Charles Blount, the first Earl of Devonshire, more commonly referred to as Lord Mountjoy. Mountjoy arrived in January 1600, and in May led an English force that broke through the O'Neill's lines and into Ulster proper. Here, he laid waste to the lands of the O'Neill and his vassals and allies, with the intention to fracture the Union of Irish Lords. The English began a brutal scorched earth policy in Ulster, burning crops and attacking peasants to induce a famine and end resistance. Mountjoy's lieutenants in this campaign were Sir Samuel Bagenal and Sir Arthur Chichester, who both devastated their assigned regions with zeal. The English forces built fortifications as they went, further amplifying the pressure. It worked. By the beginning of 1601, a series of Irish lords made their submissions to Mountjoy, and by June, even Art Rowe, Tyrone's son-in-law, and now also his brother-in-law, attempted to surrender to the English. His surrender, however, was rebuffed. If he did not act against the O'Neill, he could not be trusted to remain loyal. The late Harold O'Sullivan writes that, quote, It is clear that Art Rowe's anxiety to surrender arose from his fear of such devastation spreading into his own territories, end quote. In June, he again attempted to surrender as the English made a wasteland of his estates, and on the 3rd of July, Art Rowe successfully surrendered to Lord Mountjoy and was pardoned. Mountjoy was magnanimous. He entertained the surrendered lords in Dublin Castle, assuring them that, quote, as he had been a scourge to them in rebellion, so now he would be a mediator for them to Her Majesty in their state of subjects, they standing firm and constant in their obedience. End quote. In other words, while they were the Queen's enemies, he had been ruthless in their destruction, but provided they stayed loyal, they would face no further punishment. This policy of carrot and stick continued to succeed, and the O'Neill hemorrhaged supporters throughout the rest of 1601 and 1602. In the south, the Lord President of Munster, George Carew, had largely suppressed the rebellion there by mid-1601. Even the long-awaited support from the Spanish was not enough to turn the tide. Three and a half thousand men arrived in the town of Kinsale, only to be immediately besieged by Mountjoy. The O'Neill marched to trap the English against the walls of the town, pillaging the countryside that belonged to his former allies as he went. In January of 1602, the Battle of Kinsale was fought, and the Irish were defeated. The Spanish arrivals promptly surrendered and were allowed to return home, while Tyrone retreated north with what remained of his allies, abandoning their strongholds in the south to the pursuing English forces commanded by Mountjoy and Carew. The capacity for Irish resistance was now much reduced. Instead of pitched battles, the armies of the Confederates relied on hit-and-run tactics and skirmishes, since they could no longer match the English on the field. The O'Neill would later abandon his capital of Dungannon. Putting it to the torch as he left, Mountjoy destroyed the inauguration stone that had proclaimed the O'Neill for generations. Tyrone's greatest remaining ally, Rory O'Donnell, capitulated by the end of the year, 
while the O'Neill would hold out until March of 1603. Tyrone surrendered at Mellifont Abbey in March of 1603. Tyrone begged Elizabeth for forgiveness, on his knees in front of her representative, Lord Mountjoy. This was highly embarrassing for Tyrone. Begging for forgiveness wasn't the embarrassing part per se. It was certainly humbling, but it was expected. However, Elizabeth had been dead a week, and Tyrone had not been informed. He had publicly surrendered to a corpse. Later testimony records that, quote, the Earl could not contain himself from shedding of tears, in such quantity as it could not well be concealed, end quote. While some Irish nobles continued to fight, the chief belligerents had come to terms, and the conflict would be over within the year. The Nine Years' War was over. It had cost the English crown several fortunes in treasure, and thousands of soldiers, far more than Elizabeth ever spent in the fight against the Spanish in Europe. The O'Neill had made England bleed. But Ireland was little better. Vast swathes of country were ash and ruin, either by English hands or Irish. Large parts of the country, Ulster in particular, were under brutal martial law and would be for years. The Desmond plantations were in ruins, with thousands of English colonists and Irish tenants killed, either in the initial uprising or in its suppression. With Elizabeth dead, James would take the throne, and find an Ireland exhausted by war, draining the royal treasury, and brimming with resentment. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pax Britannica, and to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music and sound. Next time, we cross the North Channel of the Irish Sea to Scotland. James took the throne at only a year old after his mother's forced abdication and exile. His childhood and early adulthood would be spent as a pawn in the games of his powerful nobles, before he struck back and restored his royal authority. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.